Pray with me. Lord, would you open our hearts? Would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you? Amen. As Christians of the 21st century, we find many of the codes and standards of the Old Testament somewhat difficult to relate to. We all pretty much accept the Ten Commandments as good and relevant. Murder is just about as bad now as it was then. But we do thank the Lord that the kosher laws were negated every time we catch a whiff of bacon. I'm glad Aaron's not here to hear that. Still, there are many laws that feel out of touch. We don't tithe cows or lambs. We don't establish separate cities for people to flee to for a fair trial if they accidentally kill their neighbor. That's a weird one. Nor do we make tassels on the corners of our cloaks. Our cloaks don't even have corners really anymore. The reality is our world is a very different world than that of the Hebrew people who received these laws in the wilderness before they even had a nation. Yet, even so, these laws are a part of the covenant that our God made with His people. And as such, they have a real value to us believers who live in a different world but love the same Lord. A professor buddy of mine wrote a book in which he pointed out that heresy in our faith almost always comes from a lack of understanding the Old Testament as a framework for the new. As a remedy, he suggests that Christians who are hungry to know Jesus better ought to start by studying Deuteronomy, learning to love the law of Yahweh with the understanding that it prepares the way for the gracious and merciful love of Jesus. So with that in mind, I would like to draw your attention to the Old Testament reading for today. But before we get into our specific verses, I think a bit of a refresher course on what Deuteronomy is and why it is so important could do all of us a bit of good, huh? Deuteronomy is the fifth of five books of Torah, which we usually just think of as the first five books of the Bible. So we've got Genesis covering from creation to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but ending with the Joseph narrative in Egypt. Then we have Exodus, telling the account of Moses and Pharaoh, leading all the way out into the wilderness, receiving the law. Then we have Leviticus, which is mostly about tabernacle codes and some laws, but primarily on the Levite side, hence Leviticus. Then we have Numbers, which picks up from Sinai, where Moses was, and takes us all the way to the banks of the Jordan River. And then we have Deuteronomy. But you'll notice, even though this summary was very quick, that Deuteronomy doesn't seem to add much to the history of the Hebrew people. So, we could just as easily move straight from Numbers at the banks of the Jordan to Joshua, 
where they cross over the Jordan in conquest for the land. Why, then, is Deuteronomy so important? Does it interrupt the flow? What does it add? What makes it a proper finale to the Torah, to the law, the instruction of God? A hint is given when we consider the meaning of both of the book's titles. Deuteronomy means, uh, or the English, of course, Deuteronomy, uh, what we use, means second law, or perhaps even repeated law. And it's a fair description of the book, as it does have a fair amount of reflection and repetition on the laws and history previously stated throughout Torah. However, the book's proper Hebrew name is Devarim, which means the words. And this title is meant to reverence this repeated law as the swan song of Moses. These are not just some words. These are the words, Moses' final words to the people of God, reflecting on the law as it relates to God's faithfulness, what He has done for them, what He will do for them, as He hands off this people to Joshua as they're going to go into the land, and yet He knows that He stays on the other side. So yes, as the title Deuteronomy suggests, the book contains some redundancy but it is a highly dramatic reassessment of the law as a part of God's plan to bless His people. It is no surprise, then, that this final version of the law in the last words of Moses was incredibly important to Israel, to Jesus, and to the early Christians who wrote the New Testament, quoting Deuteronomy more than any other book save Psalms or Isaiah. So with that gravity in mind, Let's turn our attention to the short passage in chapter 15 printed in our bulletins. The general thrust of these verses is very straightforward, is it not? Israelites are commanded to be generous to their fellow Israelites if they are ever in need. However, there are a few things here which make this command a little difficult for present-day Christians to relate to. First off, we have a very different economy than our spiritual ancestors did. They were a small agricultural society in which many of them would have been responsible for growing their own food and not much else. They didn't pay electricity or water bills. I'm fairly sure they didn't have Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, Amazon, or any of the other thousands of entertainment services that steal our attention on a daily basis. Unlike us, They lived simple lives in pretty close, interdependent community, and their credit cards were their neighbor's charity. As such, they would have heard these words differently. I mean, just look at how Moses phrases it, right? If any one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. While they were far from perfect, the Israelites at least lived 
in an intimate family-like community with shared moral standard. As we try to receive this love, many of us are painfully aware of how distant we have become spiritually and emotionally to even our next-door neighbors a hundred feet away. Another aspect of these verses that has probably confused some of us this morning is the mention in verse 9 of the year of release. The seventh year, called the Sabbath year, is mentioned in Exodus 23, Leviticus 25, and here in Deuteronomy 15. Like a normal weekly Sabbath, the Sabbath year was to be a year of rest for both the people and the land. But it was meant to be more than just rest. It was a reset. So all debts were to be canceled and all family lands were supposed to be restored. I imagine it being like a never-ending game of Monopoly, where every seven turns the money and properties are evenly redistributed, and the only thing really worth fighting for is who gets to be the little dog piece. It's terrible to be the younger brother. Anyway, the point within the text is that this year of debt forgiveness should never deter someone from providing for anyone in need. Moses makes it clear that it would be considered sin to deny someone in need just because you are pretty sure you will not be paid back. So then, while we can admit that there are some elements of these verses which make it hard for us to apply them to our lives directly, we must also admit that there are some obvious connecting points. Sure, I probably don't know the people in my apartment building as well as many of these Jewish brothers and sisters knew their neighbors for miles around. But that just means that I ought to work harder at developing that community through sharing my faith, food, finances, time, and talents. No, we don't have a Sabbath year where everything gets cut back to square one, but that shouldn't get in the way of my ability to give without expecting to be repaid. Because the fact of the matter is that God's command to give to those who are in need is not just a burden, but as it is explicitly stated in verse 10 of our reading, it is part of receiving God's blessing. It was so back then and it is still just as true today. The Lord commands us to give and to forgive because we have already been blessed by Him and can trust in His future blessings. While this is true for them in an agricultural sense, how much more true is it for us now who live in the abundant life that has been won for us by Jesus? And this leads to the final point I want to draw from this text. One of the most beautiful things that reading through the law can do for us, and I hope that this is a practice you'll adopt, is it can lead us to reflect on how Jesus followed that law perfectly. When we look to Jesus, we see that he was constantly, constantly reaching out to the poor and the outcast before anyone else. He fed the hungry, healed the sick, gave sight to the blind. He was not deterred by the homeless or by the demon-possessed or the drug-addicted. The ugliest, crudest, foulest people were beautiful to him and valuable. 
sometimes we forget just how practical Jesus was in providing help for the lowly throughout his ministry. Yet on a spiritual level, we can all celebrate that he gave up all his wealth for the sake of us as poor brothers and sisters in debt. Not that we might live sufficiently, as our words from Deuteronomy command, but that we might live lavishly in God's love. He lent to us a sum of salvation that we could never repay, no matter how many Sabbath years got skipped. Brothers and sisters, in the dying words of Martin Luther, we are beggars, all of us. Yet even so, our king came down to the muck to bring us up into his royal line. And though we often think comfortably about Jesus paying for us out of some abstract notion of divine and heavenly riches available to him as the sum of God, we know that that is not the account that the loan was drawn from. It was not merely a theological exchange. No, it was a blood covenant paid in his flesh. He gave his body over to torture and brought death into the life of God in order to fulfill the law at the greatest cost possible in all the cosmos. Jesus lent freely to us wretches as God and man. How then are we to respond to this overwhelming gift? Knowing that we cannot give in the same way that Jesus gave, how can we give in a way that honors the one who gave so much for us? Well, the most obvious way is that we can give our finances generously without thought to being repaid. Sure. Most of us in this room could afford to cut some of our entertainment budget for the sake of giving to the needy around us. What if we could show the secular world how much Christians actually cared about others more than themselves by how little we spent on luxury or the status quo compared to the amount we gave to charity? But as important as it is that we put our money where our mouth is, there are probably hundreds of other ways that we Christians can be intentional in opening our hands and softening our hearts to those around us. We can take the oddball at work to lunch. Many of you have done this for me. Thanks and good job. (laughs) We could also join CHIP in some of the ministry to the prisoners. Or we could jump on as a language partner. We have all these options within our congregation, all these people who have ways to serve. We just need to call them up and go. What I'm saying is that there is no one here that cannot easily find a way to practice this law of given because it doesn't have to be a material loan of some kind. Though again, I do stress that the world is watching and we have to put our money where our mouth is. However, all of these things start with the same first step that is absolutely required of every Christian. We have to confess that we are not the ones in control of our money. Our time, our identity, our bodies, 
we do not get to hold on to control of anything because our lives are God's to command if we actually believe that He has bought us. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone needs to go out and be a martyr, but it does mean that all Christians are called to give in radical ways that cut into our comfortable American middle-class lives. Romans 8 reminds us that we are only co-heirs with Christ if we have shared in His sufferings. It is an essential part of our faith relationship to God. If your faith has not cost you anything, can you really blame our secular society for thinking it's worthless? Brothers and sisters, pray seriously that the Lord would show you how you should give of yourself that you might receive blessings better than you could ever earn for yourself. This law begs us to ask what we are keeping closed off from giving to God or our neighbors. It is still relevant today because our sin nature has not changed since long before even Moses. My prayer for us all today as we prepare to receive the grace of God and the body and blood of our Lord is that you will ask the Lord to use this holy meal as sustenance to equip you for miraculous levels of giving to others and that it would strengthen you all into the righteous love of the law embodied by our most generous brother and Lord, Jesus. Amen.